Wow, what a great service to come to and be a part of. In fact, I'm really glad Kleenex is close. I already used up my pocket supply and uh, really excited about what we have for us together today. We're going to bring the Center Stage series to a conclusion today with part three. Who's on the center stage of your life? Now, if you've missed part one and two, you, uh, if you're interested in taking a look back, you can online. Today we are finishing uh, what I believe is a very impactful series. We had a memory verse challenge that uh, vocalizes for us what it means to live a life that's all about Jesus. It's from Galatians 2.20. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I hope many of you uh, would be able to say, yes, I've been working on that, and if not, that even still, your heart is desiring to work on memorizing this verse. You're going to get a lot out of this vocalization, especially if it's your own, of how to make your life all about Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a theologically packed vocalization of what it means to live a life all about Jesus. I want to just give us a little bit of a graphic to break that down a little bit. This graphic was developed by Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade International. We see a lot of that still continuing today. He founded this in the late 50s, and it grew real big in the 60s and through the 70s, and uh, still continues. I think some of the organizations are called Crew now, as opposed to Campus Crusade. And the first graphic is going to be a graphic on what a self-directed life looks like. In a self-directed life, you'll see that self is on the throne. Christ is outside that life, and the interests are directed by self, and they often result in discord and frustration. I want to just add to that graphic description that although that's describing a self-directed life with Christ on the outside of life, Um, I have discovered, and maybe you have too, that when I fall back into a self-directed life, even though I'm a follower of Christ and want Christ to be the center of my life, I can fall back there and step back up under the throne and try to direct my own life, call my own shots, do my own will, and not listen to God as it relates to his will. And the only difference between the unbeliever's life and my life, that picture looks almost exactly the same with a totally chaotic, disordered life that I slip back into quickly when I'm directing myself. But Christ is now not longer, no longer in the graphic on the outside of my life, but on the bottom of my life. And I've dishonored him with my choices, dishonored him with the things that I've chosen, dishonored him with even the results of my life. My life is dishonoring to him, and the Spirit of God is grieving inside of me because my life is dishonoring Jesus. I've booted him off the throne of my life because I want to be on the throne. And this still happens 
It doesn't happen as blatantly or in uh, long durations and seasons because I so enjoy the experience of a well-ordered life where Christ is on the throne. It's such a beautiful life, I don't want to let that go and it quickly falls apart if I start directing and choosing against the will of Christ. Here's what a Christ-directed life looks like on the screen. It looks like he's on the center, he's on the throne. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We introduce others to Christ. We have an effective prayer life. We understand God's word more and more. We trust God, we obey God, and we're experiencing all the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. So I urge you to make Christ the center of your life. And if you do like I do and step almost like bump him off without even realizing it and start doing your own thing and running your own life and you start seeing that things are not well-ordered and falling apart, immediately recognize what's going on. Repent and worship Christ. He is the one who gave his life for you and is going to give so much to you and, and he will honor that prayer of confession and immediately Bow in worship, make him the one that's on center stage. And you see that this is not just talking about uh, an experience so we come to church and put Christ on center stage and make sure that we honor him and then life will be good. Nor is it I put Christ on the center stage in my life and, and let him enter into my life and I was saved umpteen years ago and now I'm going to heaven. What we're describing here is what life looks like on a day-to-day basis when Christ is in you and his life is what you're living for and he's your joy and he's your purpose. So we looked at week one, Jesus is greater than Moses, what I want to say at this point is we're going to be looking at the life of Simon Peter and how he moved to a place where he declared, he understood this, Jesus is greater than Moses. In week two, we took a look at together that Jesus is greater than David. We're going to look at Simon Peter's life and realize that he came to a point in his life where he declared and confessed that he knew this, that Jesus Christ was greater than Moses and greater than David. And today we're looking at Jesus is greater than expected. And we're going to discover in the same episode today as we're looking that Simon Peter had a lot to learn. Even though he knew that Jesus was greater than Moses and greater than David, he still had so much to learn because he is a lot like we are. We still have a lot to learn that he is greater, greater, far greater than even our own expectations of who he is. So let's jump right into point number one. Their great expectations were too small. I believe this is the case for us also, that our expectations are too small, and I hope that we will allow our expectations to rise even as P 
Peter had to learn this. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 uh, for the rest of our time together. We're starting at verse 13 when we read this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? If you're not uh, well-versed in the Gospels and haven't read them lately, you maybe have forgotten that Jesus consistently referred to himself as the Son of Man. In this text, we're going to see just in a couple verses later, it's very clear he's talking about himself because after he asks, who do people say who the Son of Man is? Then he says, but who do you say that I am? He's referring to himself. That's who he's talking about, and he wants to know what they think. You also need to know that this is very late in his ministry. Um, This is not early on. It took a while for finally even his own disciples to catch up to speed as Jesus has been talking about himself to the point where they're now willing to come to this place of confession and understanding. In Matthew 16, 14 through 16, we continue. They replied, some say... John the Baptist, this is the answer to the question, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I think that's interesting that the people know that Jesus is a prophet. They think of him as such a great prophet. He's like a returned prophet, and they're identifying past prophets who were great. I think that's fascinating. Then Jesus says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter is usually the first one to speak out. He doesn't let us down here. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So now we have three titles rolling around, and all of these are fantastic and great titles, and I wish I could spend a whole lot of time on these titles. He is the son of man. There's a good reason why Jesus refers to himself this way over and over again. Because first of all, this title is not loaded. And second of all, this title is loaded. Now, I wish I could explain that to you, but just look at the trial and how Jesus uses this title and quotes Daniel, and you see how loaded it is, but it's so unloaded in the popular crowd that he can just fill in the blanks as he goes. I wasn't going to go into all of that. I'm going to run out of time. Okay, let's keep going. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter got it right. And Jesus immediately tells him so. And it's not just that he guessed. Here we go. Verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. By the way, Peter is the nickname that Jesus assigns to him. He is Simon Peter. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. As true and as grand as this declaration is that Peter just stated about Jesus, Peter's expectations are still way too small. Point number two. Nobody expected his crucifixion. We're going to skip to verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter was shocked by this. 
He was so shocked, he actually reacts in a shocking way culturally, a way that no disciple would react toward his rabbi, but he does. And here's his reaction. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. The student rebuked the teacher. The novice stood up to the master and believed he knew better and took him aside and rebuked him to put him in his place. That will never happen. Verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, the merely human concerns. This is the strongest rebuke ever stated to a disciple. Can you imagine the shock of Peter amped up to as amped as you can get? What? He just called me Satan. Oh, how quickly we can move from 16, verse 17, hearing something from God, to 16, 23, being tempted to speak or live a thought whispered into our minds from Satan himself. Maybe you didn't realize this happens in your life. Not every thought you have are your thoughts. Not everything you speak comes from you. Oh, how quickly things can change. Why did Jesus rebuke him so harshly? Satan's way is the way of pride and self-assertion. The Savior's way is the way of humility, sacrifice, and self-denial. Let that sink in. Jesus immediately rebuked temptation and saw that this dangerous lie coming from his friend, came from the father of lies. Peter had a lot to think about. And Jesus wasn't through. Point number one, their great expectations were too small. Point number two, nobody expected his crucifixion. Point number three, Nobody expected the ongoing strategy of the Messiah to be crucifixion of the disciple. Nobody expected the ongoing strategy of what it means to be a part of this movement following Jesus is going to be a strategy of crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody understood this was what it was about. 
Nobody had any idea how great this strategy was to take over the world, absorb the darkness, and release the kingdom of light, and change everything in every way for every person that allows Christ to enter in and direct their life. They had no idea. After this unforgettable rebuke, what we are about to read next was indelibly etched into their souls, not with a sharpie, not with a permanent marker, but with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. They would never forget this. Are you ready to hear it? Here's what Jesus taught next. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must, must, this is a requirement, deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This became the defining moment for Peter, never to be forgotten. I don't think he understands it yet but he never forgot it, and he puts the pieces together. I don't know if you understand it yet, but I want it to be etched into your soul. I want you to never forget it, that this is the way of discipleship. This is the way every disciple must follow. Is it etched into your soul yet? Just in case from Matthew, you didn't quite get the fact that this is not just about when you gave your life to Christ, but this is a way that is ongoing and it's every day. Just in case you didn't catch that from Matthew, you cannot miss it in Luke's gospel. Luke, in chapter 9, verse 23 says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. I think that the ESV study Bible had a really quick, uh, grabbable quote that I'm going to put on the screen. Crucifixion is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. A disciple must deny himself, that is, die to self-will. Take up his cross, that is, embrace God's will no matter what the cost, even if it means death. And follow Christ. Many people think this is really extreme. And what they think is it's too extreme. Many, many people think this is foolish. So many people have the foolish notion that Jesus is using exaggerated hyperbole for effect. I say, no way. He meant what he said. He said what he meant. The disciples got it, and that's why they were martyred. 
They were killed. If you want to know what Jesus meant, ask the disciples. If you want to know what Jesus meant, ask Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was one of the five young men martyred in Ecuador. He wrote in his diary just days before his martyrdom, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And his death and his commitment to carry his cross and carry Christ's purpose, even in the face of death, Rather than scare all of the followers away from following Christ, it's caused a movement of young people to say, I want to be a missionary. I want to be a missionary. I will follow Christ. Because they see that that's what Jesus is calling us to. A fearless self-denial that is supernatural and beyond our ability, but comes when we trust Christ to be on the throne and give us everything we need to live this way. We can't live up to this requirement, nor is it a requirement to be saved. That's a total misunderstanding. To pick up our cross and follow Jesus is the way of following once we've been saved. Once he has done what he's done for us, died for us, and we've died to him, died with him, and died to our old selves, this new life in us is carrying us forward with the power of the Holy Spirit to live this way that shines all the glory on Jesus. I'll love you even if you kill me. I'll pray for you even if you're my enemy. I will continue to do good for you because that's what Jesus did for me. You're no worse than I am. I was a sinner and he loved me before I cleaned my act up. He loved me while I was still a sinner and died for me. And he loved me so much, he died for me, and so I will live for him and I'll love you with the love. He's loving me and loving you. Remember the source of your center daily. Take small steps daily, denying self-will, embracing God's will. There is no kingdom advancement apart from personal sacrifice. This kingdom only will expand to the degree that we're willing to deny ourselves and participate in the purpose of Jesus With personal sacrifice. It takes personal sacrifice for the good things in the kingdom to take place, particularly on the edges where light meets darkness and the clash and flame. Let me burn with the flame of the Spirit of God and let me have the strength that comes from you, Lord Jesus, to make that sacrifice even when it hurts. Nearly 200 years ago, there were two Scottish brothers named John and David Livingston. John had set his mind on making money and becoming wealthy, and he did. But under his name in an old edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, John Livingston is listed simply as 
the brother of David Livingston. And who was David Livingston? While John had dedicated himself to making money, David had knelt and prayed. Surrendering himself to Christ, he resolved, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. The inscription over his burial place in the Westminster Abbey reads, For 30 years, his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize. On his 59th birthday, David Livingston wrote, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again dedicate my whole self to thee. This comes from Billy Graham, Christianity Today, this story. To answer the question, who's on the center stage of your life, you need to ask yourself, who am I living for? To the degree that you're living for me is to the degree that you're still on center stage. To the degree that you're bowing and worship and life is all about Jesus is to the degree that he's on the center and throne of your life. And it's not about, do I still go to church? It's daily, minutely, hourly, in small steps. These big steps, martyrdom, do not come with, without the countless, countless small steps that develop the character of a life that's ready to lay down whatever the cost. Think small and you will grow tall. Are you willing to live for Jesus, honor Jesus' glory instead of your own? I want to live for Jesus, but I can only pull this off with Jesus' help. Do you want to live for Jesus? Then pray. Lord Jesus, my King, my life, my all, once again I offer you myself, spirit, soul, and body, my whole self to you. I humble myself before you. Help me to honor you with my whole life. I want to be all in, holding nothing back. And when I slip back, Lord, help me, remind me that I might come quickly to you, that your character and your life might shine through. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I pray that you would consider uh, perhaps going to the prayer team for whatever need you might have or even just have people pray for you and you just have the opportunity to say, I, I want that. 
I want Jesus to be center of my life. Would you just pray with me? Maybe that's for you today. I want to also uh, give you a little heads up. I know that this series has been one of those theological series. I literally had the next series all planned, and I just, God kind of bumped me and said, okay, can we just go a little bit more practical here because you're about to build more theology and more deep stuff, and I'm going to have to put that off because we want to take this now and put some steps behind it, some things that are on the bottom shelf that all of us can live. And so the next series is simply called How? Simple Instructions, Practical Steps. It's going to be three weeks long. I'm looking forward to it. I'll see you next week. God bless you.